Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer recording live under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today I have a special treat for you guys. I was fortunate enough to be able to travel to the Calgary, Alberta, Canada area earlier this year. And as part of my travels there, I made a point to run around town and find interesting people to talk to. I wanted to make sure that I was continuing to record content for the Hardwater Radio podcast. And so I reached out to a few people and one of the people I was able to speak to on this trip is a man by the name of John Eberly. John is the founder and president of Fusion Human Development and Performance Corporation located here in Calgary. And he's also a contributing author to the bestseller, The Fad Free fitness formula. John's chapter is titled, Fitness is Not a Fad, It's Your Healthcare. Now he's been around this industry going on 40 years since at least he joined his first gym. And as a teenager, John was fascinated by the ability to transform physically the body through exercise and diet. And at one point was a nationally ranked amateur bodybuilder. He also began working with his very first personal training client while he was still in high school, if you can believe that, and quickly realized that not everyone could connect to their body, and that inability reduced their gains. When John lost his mother to a three-year battle with cancer, it radically changed his focus from just bodybuilding to fitness and identifying the lifestyles and behaviors that could help or hinder human health, wellness, and performance. And as he started down this path, he was unfortunately faced with three car accidents. And this basically sidelined him for multiple years and had him dealing with chronic pain for nearly six. So after hours and hours invested over the course of this time period, John was able to learn enough about micronutrients that he could use that to correct the pain issues and restore proper tissue response, which would ultimately allow him to return to the fitness industry. The accidents would leave him going head-to-head with a pretty severe bout of sciatica. And he used this as the inspiration to create a series of walking patterns that he calls the silly walk. For those of you guys old enough to remember the Monty Python skits, that's where the name comes from. And this would become his first foundational movement pattern and ultimately what grew into what he calls Deep Core 4 Foundational Training. So through all these various challenges, experiences, and solutions that he was forced to come up with and challenged to come up with over the course of his career, he's used all of this to focus on creating a proactive rather than a reactive healthcare system. So back in January of 2011, John introduced his new healthcare paradigm, which is called the Fusion HDP Self-Care Program. So we dive into this and many other topics during the course of the conversation. John is a wealth of knowledge. He is basically a human encyclopedia when it comes to study after study. He can quote to the science, refer to the studies, the whole nine yards. The guy is just an amazing, an amazing resource. So do your best to pay attention to what he has to say as I drop you into the conversation already in progress. Enjoy. One of the things that was most interesting to me when I was reading your chapter um, was the definition of fitness that you use. Right. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak to that. Okay. I was originally breaking things up in fitness, nutrition, distressing, recovery, mm-hmm. because uh, people reject exercise, right? It's, a, it's such a bad word, and, and I think it's kind of been bastardized to mean very specific things from a mainstream media standpoint. Right. And so people get... Um, 
they get anxious actually around the word exercise. Mm -hmm. But then as I'm moving forward and, and we were looking at the definition for the book um, and how we were trying to implement it, we, that definition, we wanted fitness to be a much bigger definition than, than just meaning exercise. Mm -hmm. So then we actually went back to exercise, nutrition, de-stressing, and recovery. Because we then, the thinking was we really wanted people to focus on understanding that when you are doing physical activities and it's focused, that's exercise. But what you're doing for focused activity isn't what your mind is telling you it needs to be. It doesn't have to be squats and deadlifts and bench presses. And and it's really from that standpoint when we're looking at how do we how do we make sure that we're communicating things are all inclusive, um, and and how how does that translate for the for the person to receive that message better? And so um, we've actually gone away from fitness again, <laughs> and now we're moved back to wellness um, because people were just in their minds and our tests with our clients and, and our associations, they were getting stuck in fitness being exercise. Mm -hmm. So, so maybe uh, break that up for us a little bit. What in your mind is the primary difference between say a fitness situation versus a wellness situation? What does that look like? Fitness was meant to be all encompassing. So fitness was your ability. Are you fit to meet your day? Right. Are you mind, body and spirit fit? And we wanted it to be that bigger picture. And, and just through the discussions, we realized wellness just seemed to be a word that people understood more intuitively what wellness was as opposed to fitness. It sounded more holistic. Yeah. And it, it was easier for them to wrap their brains around the mind, body, spirit connection when you talked about wellness. And then when you tried to wrap it up with fitness, they were just getting lost in the, in the dust, so to speak. Um, but you know, in the, in the definition in the book, and that's really what we wanted. And, and so we could, we could actually put the word wellness in there as well, which is the ability to meet your daily challenges and routine without having to compromise. Mm -hmm. And, and so important every day people are talking about compromising, you know, compromising their values, compromising their, their thoughts, their core beliefs, their ethics, their morals. I mean, we're, we're just in that whole place of compromise. And so to be able to go and meet your day and be of sound mind, mm -hmm. right? To be physically capable of, of meeting those challenges. That unfortunately is a rarity today. It's not the norm and it certainly used to be the norm. And it was rare to be on the other side of the wall. And Mm -hmm. Things unfortunately have flipped. I see. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that was most interesting to me when I was reading uh, one of the chapters from your book uh, was you said that historically fitness was a natural consequence of survival. I thought that was beautiful, and mm -hmm. I was wondering if maybe you could talk about how that has evolved over the last well forty years since you've been in the business. Our stresses used to be food, clothing, and shelter, mm -hmm. right? And so those were pretty significant stresses. And to meet those challenges, to meet those stresses, was very physically active. You know, uh, we used to have to build our houses, <laughs> right? Imagine that. You used to have to plant your food and harvest it and take care of it and uh, deal with the livestock. And so a very physical life, that a life that even the small farmer is a disappearing factor in the North American landscape. Mm -hmm. Everything is giant ag, ag business now, and that aspect is gone. Everything's automated. Mm 
So what was supposed to leave us with a far greater leisure activity <laughs> um, hasn't, but we're just not moving anymore. We're all sitting behind desks. And most people don't move more than five feet <laughs> uh, on a regular basis. Or the longest distance they walk is to the car at the end of the day or right. in the morning to go to work. To the closest parking place they can get. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, our governments are so interesting now, including any activity as part of your exercise recommendation that they think parking at the last parking stall equates to exercise. <laughs> and it's like, wow, uh, compromise. Remember we were talking yeah. about compromise and they're compromising basic standards. We're afraid to upset anyone to say, actually, you know, you gotta, you gotta get off your ass mm -hmm. and you gotta move. Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you and I have had quite a few conversations uh, now that I've been up here in Canada. Um, but one of the things that um, you took me through and you exposed me to when I first met you was this four categories of your process that you have when you have people come through um, here at Fusion. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Sure. Um, I, I was, I mean, really has been a lifelong quest to try and understand how to create a process of, of actual health care that works for the individual. And so I realized very quickly that would have to ultimately become what we call self-care. And the concept of health and what does it take to maintain a healthy human, um, there's been a few decades put into it. And what we came out with was what I call the four elements of human health. Okay. And so that the first one is movement. And obviously, when we look at the whole point of movement or, or exercise, again, it's a friendlier word for the general populace. <laughs> Always um, marketing this guy. <laughs> but it, 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 that's the problem is you can have the mm -hmm. best marketing message in the world. But if the people aren't getting it, then you're not helping anyone. And at the end of the day, that's the goal, right, is to help create a, a, a community of, of self-empowered people who just get it. And sometimes you can't get it unless you're in the middle of it. You got to experience it. And so movement literally is the catalyst for all healing, growth, and cellular renewal in the human body. Uh, neurogenesis doesn't occur without movement. And so even learning a lot of the, the research on um, exercise and the brain uh, is is really saying the primary benefits are to the brain itself mm -hmm. and the side effects are to the cardiovascular system and the musculature and how you look and those are side effects we all like sure yeah <laughs> right but unfortunately that's why most people initiate being involved in an exercise program is for the side effects instead mm -hmm. of recognizing that it's a key component of your healthcare. Mm -hmm. and so you have to move if you don't the body will start to eat itself, atrophy, reduce the areas you're not using. And that in the quick shot is really how you get the low back pain, how you get the problems with the joints because the muscles meant to support their movement aren't being utilized. Mm -hmm. The body doesn't support a structure that isn't being used. Gotcha. Right. So first aspect is movement. Movement. That would lead us into what? Uh, we must energize the system. And this is really where the nutritional component comes in. So food today really is about how how the body can produce and then maintain and manage energy the secondary component for energizing the body is uh, supplementation 
And, you know, the sad truth with modern food processing is our food does not contain anywhere near the nutrient levels it used to. I wish that wasn't the case, but uh, proper supplementation is a key component. Um, and, and that's been verified scientifically, yes? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is the one where there's always the most controversy around, but the science is really clear. The oldest record I could find was 1936. It was a senatorial record in the U.S. Congress. Um, and there was already a doctor then trying to wake up the, uh, the union that there were problems with nutrient levels then. Mm. Um, huge study in 1948 from uh, Rutgers University um, looking at nutrient levels in um, older established farming states versus the new ones. At that time, you know, Colorado out, out west. Um, and the new ones, the soils were producing much higher nutrient levels. Mm. They had been farmed less. Mm. Um, and so it really was already speaking to some concerns then. Um, and with mass monocultures and, and the new big ag business, the way they've taken over farming, um, the depletion of the soils is just to the point where there are government studies showing a lot of things are 100% less nutrient than they used to control. 100%? 100%. How is that even possible? <laughs> um, the use of chemical fertilizers. Okay. So... Uh, chemical fertilizers are incomplete and, and you can really liken them to a multivitamin. If your multivitamin only has three nutrients and isn't complete, then what happens with the crops is they still look good because all food is graded only on appearance. Food has never been graded on nutritional quality, at least from a selling standpoint. So you can have uh, big green leaves and have no nutritional content left. Wow. Uh, the first time I really heard this, there was uh, Dr. Michael Colgan had uh, the Colgan Institute of Nutritional Science in California. Mm -hmm. And they were doing a study, uh, this was in 82 he reported this, they did a study on the California orange groves and they were literally pulling oranges right off the tree, testing the nutritional content right then. They were retesting in three hours and they were testing the next day. Wow. And off the tree, they had half the, the amount of vitamin C that, that the USDA said was in an orange. Really? And it had already in three hours depleted. And the next day, they were unable to register vitamin C content in the orange. So they picked a bunch, sent it to USC, had them do it, and they sent sent Dr. Colgan back a note going, ha-ha, Colgan, how'd you get the vitamin C out of the oranges? <laughs> and, you know, that was 82. So uh, mass food production has only increased. It hasn't, hasn't returned back to a more natural composting, crop rotation type of scenario that allows the soils to be rejuvenated. Sure. And I think that's going to be a natural consequence from, what, 3 to 5% of the population feeding the other 95 <laughs> to 97? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Instead of us doing it ourselves. Right. 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 For sure. I mean, so, sorry. I was no. going to say, you actually have districts now in the U.S. that make it illegal to grow a garden. Oh, for sure. Right. Or collect rainwater, for right. example. Yeah. Right. Which, pardon? Exactly. Well, you can't get any more human rights than that. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's it's mind-boggling when you see um, laws against what you can and cannot do on your own property. And, of course, you and I being, you know, sort of politically minded in certain aspects, we could probably go off on 15 tangents there. But uh, to keep it succinct, we have movement. 
Then we have the nutrition piece, and yes. then what would be third? A third would be what we call rebooting or de-stressing the system. Okay. And so when we go from a calm, relaxed state into a full fight-or-flight response, you really are um, going outside of the natural program, and you have to reboot it to bring it back online. And so it's very much like a computer program. Um, the more times you flip the switch and you're going in and out of fight or flight, um, the more you're using up the memory, the more the inability is created to return to normal. And so um, learning to practice relaxation is a concept we use with our clients now, and it's a foreign one. Really? And, and how do you practice that with your clients? What, what does that look like for you? Uh, first, we have to actually create awareness that they're stressed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the life, uh, the pace of life today has so radically changed from when even I was just a kid. Um, our big department store in Canada was called Eaton's. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked there in high school and we were only open late Thursday night and never on a Sunday. Right. Right. So you still had lots of time off. Um, work schedules were, were restricted. Um, at that time, David Letterman was the new late night talk show. It was just John, Johnny Carson and David Letterman. But it's, yeah, radical change in lifestyle. And, and we really talk about the uh, Bugs Bunny Roadrunner scenario with the clients being Wiley Coyote and Sam the Sheepdog. They're enemies, but they walk each other to and from work. Mm -hmm. And so when they punch the clock, they're enemies. When they punch out, they walk each other home. And stress is like that today. So most of us are unaware of the level of the stress that we're under. So we first help create that. We have all kinds of stress homework, um, values worksheets, uh, stress awareness, um, memorabilia Mm -hmm. that help them understand where they're at. So Um, you're literally giving your clients some homework, some written homework. Oh. Definitely. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a a key part of the process. Um, The most common comment we get is, I didn't know I felt that way, especially when we're dealing with the core values worksheet component. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we're, you know, we're conflicted. We're raised with multiple value systems. You have the first one, of course, is your parents' value system. And then if you grew up in any type of a religious organization, there's a value system there. Mm -hmm. The siblings always form their own little value systems. Then you have your friends. Then you have the workplace place and and or the university before that and so most people are fractured in that they're different people and with different groups and that adds so many extra layers of stress into an individual that they they don't know what they believe or stand for anymore mm-hmm. and uh, I'm a I'm a big proponent and that the homework always bears this out that when they're done the areas that they have identified as their core values we, we then sit down and go through them together to identify which of these are you not living up to mm-hmm. and that is always where their greatest stress is produced I see so here's a question for you around that line so when we're talking about stress or tension mm-hmm. um, do you see a difference between those two terms or are they the same in your mind well let's go with the medical definition because I think they actually got this one right Stress is anything the body has to adapt to or for. 
Okay. So most of us think of stress as this cloud that just descends on you when the in-laws visit. <laughs> or the boss is overbearing. And that's not wrong. <laughs> that That is absolutely correct. Those are stressful. Um, but stress is so much deeper than that. It's, it's uh, you know, if you live in L.A., it's the air pollution you have to breathe every day. It's terrible. Putting in incredible amounts of stress on your respiratory system, trying to detoxify those chemicals. Um, it's not getting enough sleep because your body's missing out on its rejuvenation cycle. Um, it's being nutritionally deficient um, and not getting enough of, say, your B vitamins, which are very hard to keep in the body. Stress uses those up very quickly. So all of the things that your body takes your body out of its natural state are stresses and they all have a toll and everyone's body has an innate ability to deal with multiple stressors. We were designed very well so we can get as stressed out as we need to every day. But the key is that at the end of the day, you must be able to go back into that homeostatic state and, and return to a state of calm and, and peace and relaxation. And that's what allows the system to turn back on the healing mechanisms and the repair mechanisms that potentiate the cycle and allow you to keep going. I'm probably going to paraphrase this. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. That It woke me up when I read it, and it goes something along the lines of stress and tension are basically unconscious actions or activities that your body experiences, whereas relaxation and that resetting is a very conscious sort of way of addressing your experiences throughout the day. And when I read that, it hit me it hit me hard because I always think of meditation or of relaxation as being not doing something. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> right. not it's not doing something. But the reality of it is this is very for me it's a very active exercise and I wonder if you could speak to that. Meditation is fantastic and unfortunately I find for Western people it's a very difficult concept because we're never taught to sit with ourselves. We're never taught to be alone, count backwards from 60 to one to to set the stage for a meditation. I can't do that. Um, I am a big fan of guided meditations where you just sit and you listen to someone helping you think about your body, relaxing the various areas and components of your body. And so it is very active, but for us what it does is it takes us out of our mental chaos that most of us seem to be in at the end of a day and it makes you focus and zero in on the one aspect that you're listening to and that's what allows the relaxation response to kick back into the body it's also why yoga has suddenly taken off in the last decade um, as a recreational activity mm. people are drawn to it but they don't understand that when you're standing on one leg with the other leg behind your ears you have to let go of all the chaos in your life you <laughs> must be present right and it's, so it's in, it's in that being present that, that people get that autonomic nervous system mm. um, rebalance that allows them to feel good you can take a deep breath again and a lot of that stress just melts away and you can cope for another day <laughs> so why is it so hard for people to sit alone with themselves john well i think there's a massive amount of in inauthenticity uh, that is pervasive in our society um, when you ask someone how they feel or what they will or won't accept in a relationship, which is part of part of the questions in our uh, core values. And they don't have an answer to what they will and won't accept in a relationship. 
if you haven't thought about what you will and won't accept from the person you're supposed to be cohabitating with and you're supposed to be the love of your life, what's the chance you haven't thought about what you want? That's a great point. It's a fair point, too. Right. And that's why we're scared to sit with ourselves, because I think for most of us, we're going to have the realization that we aren't very happy in the way our life is at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that is why we see so many emotional concerns today. I don't really believe in, in mental illness per se. But I do believe that we create situations that produce that symptom, symptomology, without a doubt. Right. Yeah. So it's that idea, if, if we don't look at it, it doesn't exist, kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like when my kids were little and we would play chase, and when they got scared, they'd put their hands in front of their face. <laughs> like, I, oh, now I can't see you. <laughs> and I think as adults, we do that. And, and it's easier to just ignore and put on reality TV instead of spending an hour with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much easier to laugh at someone else on screen displaying the same hang-ups and problems you have than it is to sit down, truly accept it, and then formulate a proper response to how to get out of it. Certainly. So we've got movement. We've got nutrition. We've got this idea of de-stressing. What comes next? Um, what we call recharging or allowing the recovery process to actually occur. And this is the this is the tough concept because especially for a, a, an athlete, athletes love the training component, and that's usually why they're athletic. Um, they like that activity, but we forget that there is an actual process to stimulating growth in strength and growth in muscle and the amount of time it takes the body to actually repair or rebuild that cellular structure. And so, you know, the quick science of it is for twenty about 24 to 48 hours after a good hard workout, the cells you damaged are dying off. And then for 48 to 72 hours, they're being repaired or replaced. So there really is about a five-day process from a really good hard workout to when the body's actually recovered. And if we're not allowing that to occur, if we're not giving the body that time, um, that's when overtraining occurs. But from a, a more healthcare standpoint, um, we're running into cycles that are going to actually produce uh, knee replacements 15 years down the road, mm-hmm. uh, hip replacements, and um, damage to our liver, <laughs> mm-hmm. and things where we end up having to go into the medical side of things because we're not allowing the body to do it. Uh, sleep, from a daily standpoint, is obviously one of the most important aspects when it comes to recovery. Um, most people don't understand that dreaming is a key component of sleeping. And so when you talk to people and you ask them, do you dream? And if they can't answer that, then they're probably not really getting a true sleep cycle. They're more than likely doing what I call passing out every day from just pure, pure mental and physical exhaustion. I can see that in a lot of folks, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it, so they're not actually waking up feeling rested. And that's always the key is if you wake up feeling rested and you're ready to take on the day, you know you had a great sleep cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that seems obvious. Um, but there are things that are less obvious when we're talking about recovery. Um there is a reason why we used to have a work week that was five days and you had two days off every weekend. And so with our clients who are usually between uh, life, kids, and certainly if you're an entrepreneur, you're working six, seven days a week all the time. And realizing that you must have at least a 24-hour period 
where there's nothing you have to do. So this is where, you know, the housewife wants to reach across the table and smack me because she's got three kids. They're all in different activities. She's driving every day. She has to cook the meals. Right. And I'm like, then you have, you have to talk to your partner. You have to talk to someone who takes that burden one day of the week to allow your body the downtime it needs. And the concept of have to is really important for people to grasp. You know, I had one woman say, look, I, I like to make dinner for the family on Sunday. It's my thing. I enjoy it. And I say, well, that's great. That's not a have to. You're choosing to do that, and it brings you joy. So you're able to maintain uh, a body state without tension. Mm -hmm. This is where that tension and stress aspect comes in. So if you can do it because it brings you joy, then you do that on your day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Generally, we don't want anything to be real physical, you know, have a nice coffee down by the the take go for a walk by the lake totally relax chill out um, but if if you have to get off the couch at four and go I have to make dinner you can just feel the tension change in someone and it's like yeah you've just disrupted right that recovery cycle so something that gives you energy versus requires energy of you in a way right and too often that's just mindset mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. it's just how you're perceiving what's happening mm-hmm it's everything. So, so when you when you're looking at taking on a client or bringing someone who isn't fit into fitness or wellness, how do you go about applying your four step process or your four element process to that individual when they come see you? Well, we always start um, when we have a client who's looking for our self care program. We start them on a. Um, very detailed computerized analysis of their body and it allows us to look at 11,000 different aspects of how their body is responding on a, on a minute to minute basis from that which is very individual from person to person it gives us the information on how their digestive system is working, what their nutrient levels are, um, where the muscle tensions are in the body, how the uh, nervous system is functioning. Uh, it gives us over 200 different emotions that they're experiencing and helps us understand where their state is at. It never tells us what they're thinking, but it really does tell us what they're feeling. And so it gives us that ability to have that inside. I always joke after a three-hour session on the machine, it's like we've known each other three years <laughs> because there's that much information exchange. Right. And it allows us to create a program that is literally suited to them mm -hmm. and to meet their needs, not going off population studies. Right. So you're, you're talking about the, bio, the biofeedback mechanism that you use here. And I'm wondering if you could maybe out line how that actually works um, as we talked the other day and I showed you a few machines and you were like yeah that one's crap and yeah. you know, this is not going to give you what you need um, yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about how that works and what the benefits of it are um, I know when Christina was my wife was explaining it to me I really she wasn't able to conceptualize it and, and communicate it in a way that I understood right. and I think there's a, a lot of misconceptions in the marketplace about how beneficial this may or may not be Right. Well, yeah, let's go back to sort of the first version of a biofeedback device that was actually used medically 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, it was the primary treatment for stress 
and depression in those days. Um, it was probably the size of a desktop. <laughs> so really? it was a very large machine. Uh, the person was hooked up with four electrodes on the brain. Uh, it was really only looking then at the, the four primary brain waves, so delta, um, beta, theta, and alpha. And one channel, they were two channel devices, one channel simply read the output frequencies of your brain waves, and the other channel actually sent in normal brain wave patterns. So it was reading what you're doing. It's almost like an old record player. You're old enough to remember one of those, at least. I am, yes. <laughs> I even owned one. Yeah. So if, if your brain is firing at 78, which was the in-between size, mm -hmm. and you had an LP which needed 33 RPM, between the two, after eight or ten sessions, they would sync. Mm. And so by giving the biofeedback of the normal pattern, your brain, which was scattered, would actually just start to sync itself with that feedback and bring itself back in line. Okay. Okay. And so eight to ten sessions was kind of the deal. It worked really well. And then unfortunately, um, fortunately, unfortunately, uh, it's obviously open for debate, um, pharmaceuticals started to take hold for being stressed out for depression, um, for many of the things that biofeedback was originally being used for. <clears throat> and so biofeedback fell to the wayside from a mainstream perspective. But like anything electronic, um, the development just continued to take off. You know, my first computer was a, a Mac Classic in 1992. It was a 16 megabyte hard drive. That's huge. And that, that was huge then, right? Because <laughs> the, the model before was eight megabytes. Right. So you're like, wow, that's amazing. And uh, it could control all that data. And, and just like your computer today um, is a thousand times faster, bigger, quicker. Um, anything dealing with electronics is also radically increased. And so uh, the device I use is a 12 channel instead of a two channel. Um, and instead of um, looking at four different frequencies in the body, it's looking at 11,000 different frequencies. Um, and it's literally just looking at, is it in sync or is it out of sync? And if it's out of sync, then your body's not operating the way it's meant to. And so the process of the four elements is to help your body start to regulate and modulate itself back into normal balance. So it starts there. You get the results from from the biofeedback. Yep. And then you start making recommendations to, to move, to consume. How does it work? Yeah. So I, I take the info. Uh, it's usually three to four hours is the first session while I'm gathering all the data. Um, then you, you go home, usually much more relaxed, have a nice sleep. We're going to meet next week. Um, I'm going to take uh, anywhere between three and four hours normally. Uh, to then go through that data and um, write, write the report. And so we don't want to focus you on, on what's not working. What we want to do is focus you on the things you need to do for your daily process. Uh, people, people tend to fixate on something that's not going right, so we focus you on what we need to do mm -hmm. and just create a, a process that you follow on a daily basis. And it absolutely encompasses the four elements. So we make sure that you're understanding the, the right way to eat for your body, uh, what, what nutritional supplementations are required, um, the right way to move, and then introducing the de-stressing practices, because I honestly have never had a client who's doing any regular de-stressing work at all. Um, and then recovery, again, for most people is a, is a very different process and, and a, a tough one for them to integrate. 
they can sometimes have to get their partners involved to allow that to occur. Um, but certainly we encourage that and we encourage everyone in the house to start adopting a, a lifestyle that allows them to get back in control of their own health and wellness. So as they come through the door and, and you're learning all of these different things about them, are you putting them to movement initially or are you waiting to put them to movement until you've got some results and from, from the biofeedback or learned more about their lifestyle? Um, it really depends on the individual. Uh, if they're coming in with some type of health concern, mm-hmm. I always wait because I want to understand all the variables. Um, you know, uh, about 30% of our clients come in, they're just proactive. Um, and, and so those people will initially start getting them moving. Um, our specific type of movement that we start with is called foundational training, um, which is always about reinforcing the natural movement of the skeleton, so there's no risk there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, we do get a lot of referrals from people with injuries uh, and who are, you know, last chance to avoid a surgery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they usually don't even go on the machine first. Um, usually the, the mechanical aspect of the body's movement is so straightforward, it's very simple to just get them moving right away mm-hmm. um, and to alleviate their pain usually in the first session. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So you want to get them out of pain. You want to get them moving properly, eating properly. And then what comes after that? Are you are you pres- specifically prescribing types of movement or volumes or intensities? Or is it more along the lines of we want to get all of this sort of stuff over here in life handled before we start worrying more about getting you more fit, if that's a term? Right. Um, honestly, that's an individual basis. Mm. Um, some people have the capacity to integrate a lot of new things at once. Mm-hmm. What we found over time is it really is usually a slow introduction. We usually start with movement because it's the catalyst. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the four elements are in that order specifically for that reason. Um, movement is the catalyst. It starts all growth, healing, renewal, uh, rebalancing, regulation of the system. Um, you know, if you don't move, your colon doesn't even work right. So, right. you know, those are some basic life processes we need to know are, are actually happening. So we, 90% of the time, that's where we start. Right. Um, and then as they get that under control and they're ready to accept something else, Else. Because one of, one of the problems that, that does occur, and we see it a lot, is people who find us are often A-type personalities. And that means their life is already as full as they could possibly have it. And then they come in and they want to do, you know, five days a week working out, and they want to change this, and they want to change that. And it's there is a point where even positive changes are just another stress mm-hmm. if your body is already overwhelmed sure right and so for a lot of those people we actually reduce the amount they're working out because too many people are using exercise as a way to modulate their stress and, and cope yeah but it's almost like the last bastion of freedom right of expression right you can come into a gym and throw some weight around and scream and run a little bit and, and get it all out right it's not acceptable in our world anymore to actually show emotion <laughs> so true the, uh, my oldest client just turned actually uh, February 79 um, and she's been coming for about 11 years um, and I remember the first time uh, she showed up and I bought her a pair of boxing gloves and I handed them to her and she's like oh I can't use those <laughs> and by about the eighth punch on the bag she was smiling mm-hmm. 
right? Because she had never been allowed to express anger or or to uh, be aggressive. And so uh, she has a ball when she puts on the gloves and just beats the heck out of the bag. Um, it's so important that we do that. We call those purging workouts. And so it doesn't matter what our plan is. If our client walks in the door and we see they're having one of those days, it's like, okay, plans are changing. We're going to do a purge workout. We're going to pull out the big tire. We're going to let them beat it with a sledgehammer. We're going to have them punch and kick and just really have that huge physical outlet so they can go home and let all that steam escape. That's fantastic. <laughs> so fantastic. Yeah. So loaded question in time. So, you know, what is the biggest problem you see in the fitness world after your 40 years or in your 40 mm-hmm. years of doing this? Wow. Uh, yeah, that's a big one. Probably get me in trouble in some places. That's my plan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the fitness industry has completely missed what their role is. Um, you have uh, all-time lows for participation in fitness programs, both in Canada and the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, they peaked, actually, believe it or not, in the mid-'80s. Uh, about, and it wasn't even 40%. It was about 38% was kind of the peak. Uh, Canada, the last stats were about 15% of the population. Uh, U.S. is 20. And that's meeting their ridiculously pathetic government standards right. for physical activity. <clears throat> so from a business standpoint, you have to think, how bad is the fitness industry that they can't attract people in, <laughs> right? I mean, if, if you're regularly attending a club, you couldn't even imagine not working out. But the majority of the of the population out there could never imagine going to a gym. Right. And so that's the failure of the fitness industry. You know, you talk to the people and, and what are the things that keep them out? I mean, the... The peripheral ones is, to, I don't have time. Mm-hmm. It costs too much. We we all know those really don't apply. Right. What are the things that really keep people out? Um, low self-esteem, right? Um, I don't want to have to go to Lululemon and buy those clothes and have my muffin top show and uh, though that or it happens with the guys as well, you know that guy's really strong. I don't want to have to do my bench presses be, beside him. Mm-hmm. Um, we've created environments that are not friendly mm-hmm. to people who aren't used to the gym. So that's one big thing. But I, th- I think the biggest thing is the fitness industry has never really understood what its role is, which is to teach people how to move first. Like we're, we're teaching them advanced exercises how to bench press, how to deadlift, how to squat for people who don't even get on and off a toilet the right way, right? They're not even in control of their body's movement. And we're trying to teach them these very advanced, um, complex movement patterns. No wonder they're going home feeling sore, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, if you blast someone so hard, uh, unfortunately, a lot of trainers are like, oh yeah, I kicked his ass today. Um, yeah, with some of our clients, we can do that. But the majority of our clients don't want to go home hurting. Right. <laughs> they want to go home feeling better at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. if you're not helping them learn how to do an actual squat, <laughs> right, how to lift their arm up without pain, when, when we don't teach them how to move, we've, we've really missed the boat. So how do we reinstitute that? into our societies how do we get that going where are the la sierra high schools of you know the 2000s 
I mean, the idea would, of course, be that our governments got serious about physical education again and, and started teaching children at their peak learning years, which, yes, would be elementary school, and, and helping them understand the value. And you have 12 years of a captive audience mm-hmm. to be able to walk them through. This is how the body moves. This is how you do a bench press to build muscle. This is how you do a bench press for strength movements. Um, you would have the time and the place and the energy. Um, barring that, we have to recreate what our fitness facilities are that open the door, uh, that let them know it's okay. We don't expect you to know how to do these things and it's okay to fail. Um, that's why I love exercise because it's, it's the best life lesson there is. If you've never done a movement before and I ask you to do it, and this happens with pro athletes all the time, um, you know, even uh, we've worked with, with some pro quarterbacks and they come in and you throw down a sit fit and you say, okay, put put your front leg on the sit fit, put your back leg on a bench and do 10 lunges and they can't stay up. And you're like, dude, you're a pro athlete. <laughs> and if our pro athletes can't be in control of their own bodies, why are we expecting the average person walking off the street who's been a desk jockey for 20 years to even understand what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Right? And you have to break this down to a level that is so simple but effective at the same time so that they immediately, in that first workout, you're able to captivate their attention. Mm-hmm. Right, let them see the benefit right away. Um, you know, and you've got to fail. You teach them that it's okay to fail, mm-hmm. but you also teach them if there's no nerve damage. This is the fun thing with the body. The first, the first ten reps they're going to do, they're going to fail miserably. Mm-hmm. The second set, they should be getting a solid B because their nervous system now is understanding what you're asking of them. Right. Right. So they start to gain control. And the third set, people start to feel like, hey, you know what? I can do this. Mm-hmm. Right. First set, oh, I'm a failure. Second set is, this is tough. Third set is, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I can do it. And if that's not the impact people are having in their first year, say, in a fitness facility, why would they come back? Right. Right. They need to be built up. They need to leave feeling like Wonder Woman and, and Superman. And that, man, life changes. And, and you get to see, I mean, how fast does a body change in three months of solid working out? It's, it's a different body in three months, mm-hmm. right? And it's a different body in three more months. <laughs> and it's a different body in three more months. And, you know, that's the exciting part. When people start to recognize that, that that's how fast their body changes, a lot of other life issues, they start to, the light bulb goes on. They go, I can make a change. But they understand there's time and effort involved. Mm-hmm. And when people don't know the process, then, of course, they can't take action. But when they see something so laid out so easily and so beautifully with movement, and then you can apply that to literally every other aspect of your life. Try cooking for the first time. (laughs) I hear stories from women all the time about the first time they tried to cook cook, uh, cookies, and they turned into giant saucers on the pan because they didn't have the recipe right. Right? But hey, by the time you you do that recipe 10 times, you figured it out and you make beautiful cookies. Um, Same thing with every other aspect of our life. But we have to understand, one, it's okay to fail. Actually, it's expected. And that you will achieve if you just don't quit. So, so John, what is healthcare? Healthcare, well, um, 
what should healthcare be or or <laughs> that I mean that's a tough one. I'm right? gonna let you run on this one. <laughs> I, I, we have uh, a similar way of thinking about this term. I, when when someone says to me um, healthcare, what what to me they're really saying is that they're talking about medical care. I think it's two very different things, and um, I think you and I spoke on this the other day, and I wanted to get your take on uh, all of the things that pop into your mind when that term is misapplied and misused, <laughs> and how we can really educate people on what healthcare really is. Yeah. You know, I, I like this example because it's a great one. Uh, health Canada's mission statement is to maintain and improve the health of Canadians. And so that's a beautiful, proactive um, mission statement. The only problem is there's nothing in the Western medical model that's proactive. Everything is reactive. So nothing takes place until health has already failed or is in serious question. And honestly, there's no person I've ever talked to who would consider going to the doctor unless something was wrong. Mm -hmm. So then we're, we're no longer in the area of healthcare at all because we're only dealing with uh, the absence of health. So we're dealing with, with disease care. And that is the entire training system is either through pharmaceutical, sorry, first disease identification, and then treatment either through pharmaceutical means or surgical. And that is the expertise of Western medicine. But yet it's being misapplied as a healthcare system. And I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of one-on-one -on -one talks with doctors, and they'll all agree that 85% of people going to the healthcare system need lifestyle modification. Mm -hmm. They don't need medicine. Mm -hmm. But when you're the only game in town and you're misapplying life and death treatments for people who need to exercise and eat right, mm -hmm. that actually starts to create health crises. Mm -hmm. And then the healthcare system itself starts to become the cause of illness, injury, and death. Yeah, and so uh, to your mind, you know, in your chapter, you pointed this out, um, but you mentioned the actual causes of death. Yes. You know, and, and you touch on lifestyle. Maybe go in a little bit of depth about what those actual causes of death really are, what they look like. Yeah, it was a really interesting study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it was the first time it was ever done, and they haven't repeated it. <laughs> but they took all the data for the millennial millennium, uh, the year 2000. It took them four years to compile it. And they looked at the actual causes of death. So people don't realize that cancer is not a cause of death. Heart disease is not a cause of death. There's symptoms of why a person died, but they weren't the causes. And this study was specifically set out to determine the underlying causes that led to cancer, heart disease, diabetes, etc. And so number one was smoking. And clearly that is an individual choice. And that was, I think, 14% of all deaths. Uh, 440,000 deaths annually were directly attributable to smoking. <clears throat> Second was poor diet and physical inactivity at 400,000 deaths a year. Now, again, you choose what you put in your mouth. You choose if you exercise or not. You choose if you smoke. So we now have the top two causes of death over 800,000 deaths a year directly attributable to choice. That's amazing to me. The third was alcohol. 
but it was way less. It was only 85,000. So when you're talking about, you know, if you want to play the odds, you know, I haven't actually been to Vegas yet, but um, <laughs> if you're going to play odds, your healthcare system should be based around the things with the biggest potential positive outcome. And looking at that study, you have 440,000 deaths from smoking, 400,000 deaths from inactivity and poor diet, and another 85,000 deaths a year from, from uh, drinking. So when you look, those are all individual choices. So what that tells you on the upside is your individual choices are incredibly powerful or incredibly destructive. And our healthcare system should be about educating people about this. Again, something that should be in our schools right from the time kids are in kindergarten all the way up. So that these things are just part of their lifestyle. When you actually look at the other top 10 causes of death, so the other seven, they, they were all lifestyle choices as well. Mm. Uh, driving, uh, car accidents were in there at about 14,000 deaths. Mm -hmm. uh, illicit use of drugs, so we're talking street drugs, is about 14,000 deaths. Um, again, your choice. Mm -hmm. uh, infectious disease, people say, well, that's not your choice. And I say, well, actually it is. You have lifestyle, we know, uh, boosts immunity, right? If you have a healthy lifestyle, if you're exercising, you're eating right, you have a much stronger immune system than someone who doesn't. So indirectly, it is a lifestyle choice to have a strong immune system or not. So when we really look at it, it's quite a fascinating uh, study and probably why they didn't do it. Again, because uh, the data goes against the medical model. True. And it also puts the onus on the individual as opposed to a system or a pill or a third party. And, you know, we've had this conversation about uh, personal responsibility a couple of times this week. <laughs> but uh, it seems to me that um, that the knowledge is there, that the information is available, that even the the most, you know, remote locations, if you have access to a cell phone or a computer, all this information is a click away. You know, so why isn't it sexy? Why aren't people mm. latching on to the idea that they have the power to care for themselves? Yeah, well, that is the uh, $64 million question. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're setting me up good on this one. Um, <laughs> who loves you, babe? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, who loves you, babe, is a great answer. <laughs> I, I think there's a big, big problem with a, a lack of self-respect, a lack of self-worth and a lack of self-love because of how we're being raised and taught in our society that we're not allowed to think. Uh, you're not allowed to find answers for yourself. And if you weren't hearing it from an expert, you, you must be crazy for thinking it that way. Mm -hmm. And the evidence, of course, is the exact opposite. But you have to take the time to do the looking yourself. And we've been taught to wait for a spoon to come to our mouth, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially in media. Absolutely. Right. Our old trusted sources, uh, people don't realize mainstream media has gone through some radical shifts in the last 20 years. And just for revenue, um, you, they're now doing ads as 
as uh, you know editorial content. For sure. <laughs> I mean, literally, it seems to me almost an impossible task to break the average person out of their way of thinking and being to challenge them to do something good for themselves, their community, their body, their family even. And I mean, the question that's always on my mind and the question that I haven't really been able to find any significant answer for is how do we break that cycle you know what is there a system that would break that cycle um is, does it just have to do with the the way people are socialized and raised or is it much deeper than that um we talked about the leisure time that factory farming created right and how the leisure time itself didn't become a time for us to do things that we wanted to be active in. It became time for us to be lazy and do nothing. So how much of it is human nature versus, you know, some some way of thinking versus some system that may or may not exist? Yeah, boy, that's a that is a big question. Uh, you know, human nature is always there. I, I, I this is a good philosophical debate. Um, I don't think that we're greedy by nature. I think circumstances bring that out in us very quickly. I don't think we're lazy by nature, but circumstances bring that out in us. Everyone likes the path of least resistance, and governments have pandered to that for 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And so it creates a mindset, and the only way I've been able to see it happen is you have to turn light bulbs on in people, and our educational system isn't doing it. Mm -hmm. Our government programs aren't doing it. And let's face it, in, in today's marketplace, our governments are far more concerned about the corporate uh, relationships than they are their citizens' relationships. They just have to be. It's a global marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has radically shifted the landscape in our lifetime. And so that's a very rapid change. So we have to be able to self-empower people or people need to find someone who helps self-empower them mm-hmm. so that they understand they are literally the ones in control. There is no one coming to save them, but they can save themselves, and that's honestly the exciting part of it. Um, that's why we focus so much on the foundational movement, because if you can eliminate that pain in one workout, you just change their entire reality in a 30-minute or 40-minute session especially if they've had chronic pain for five or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the energy it takes just to try and cope with the pain is overwhelming. And the minute you remove that, you do turn on light bulbs. You do get people to look beyond their standard beliefs. Um, you know, I've always looked at uh, what I do here as, as an awakening for people, not just in their health, but again, health and wellness is all-encompassing. It's how you see the world. Mm-hmm. The minute you no longer are in pain, the minute you feel good about yourself, the minute you now know that you couldn't lift 100 pounds before and now you can pull 220, um, that is so self-empowering. People realize that all those barriers that were put in front of them are artificial. Right. But you have to be able to willing to, there has to be a hook. You have to be able to get those people in to start the process. Certainly. And that clearly the fitness industry hasn't been able to do. The people who engage in it have great success in, in my club, but then, you know, how do we reach more people? Right, right. And that is a, that is a tough one. Mm-hmm. So tell me, who is a good fit for fusion? Um... Well, it's interesting. I can tell you who our demographic is currently. (laughs) Um, It's predominantly 40 to 65-year-olds. 
usually their upper end management or self-employed, so they have some flexibility in their time frames. Mm-hmm. Um, and about 70% of them have some type of a health issue that they can't escape. Mm-hmm. So they have to face it. And, you know, that maybe that's what it takes is there's always has to be a catalyst for someone to accept that they need to change. Mm-hmm. Health, unfortunately, is usually a good one. Um, but there are always big consequences that come with that, mm-hmm. um, which is <laughs> which makes it much more interesting. A good fit for fusion, though, that's our demographic. But a good fit is anyone who wants to make change. Um, you know, honestly, I, I prefer to work with complete rookies physically than than with a pro athlete because the pro athletes already have they've already had a lot of success, and so to get them to change what they're doing. Mm-hmm which is what you have to do if they're going to grow. They can't keep doing the same things, but then they fight you on it. Where when you take someone who doesn't know anything, they admit they don't know anything, they can have progress that is so fast. It's it's so exciting, Mm -hmm. you know, which is actually funny. We used to do uh, a bunch of corporate events where we'd go in um, and over the next eight weeks, we'd do corporate challenges physically. Mm -hmm. And we would always skew it to make sure that the jock couldn't win. <laughs> right. And it's because the game, buddy, come on. Well, indirectly, right? Because we, you know, the first day when we do the initial assessment, the jock is always a star mm-hmm. and the poor secretary who's struggling, you know, to do any of the movements. But then the, the ability for her to get control of her body and to show a percentage increase mm-hmm. far outpaces the jocks. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it really self-empowers everyone in in the office who isn't uh, physically active or who wasn't and lets them know how fast they can actually change that. Mm -hmm. And so that was really always the goal is to help empower people. The jock already knows what he can and can't do. They know if they're given an A effort or a B effort. um, And they just thought they could coast through. And, you know, that jock could still win the contest, but they would have to... Go, go back as if this was a serious challenge for them. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, man, how, tell people out at listening right now how they can find you, how they can get in touch with you. Um, our, my website is uh, fusionhdp.com. Um, you can find me at Fusion on Facebook and at Fusion on Instagram. I'm still playing with Twitter and don't really have that thing going right. <laughs> I'm a little older. <laughs> you can have to stay away, man. Don't get sucked into the politics over there. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave that to my son. He, he loves it. Um, but th- those are the places you can find me. Um, you know, set, you know, contact me off of my Facebook. That's probably the easiest way. And, uh, you know, we can have some great conversations. Um, always, always open to having having great talks. For sure. Um, so, guys, just uh, straight up, John is one of the most knowledgeable men I've met in the industry. And if you're listening to this podcast in the Calgary area, you definitely want to give Fusion a call. Ask to speak to John. Get something set up. Come see the guy. Especially if you're one of those people he described that fits the bill for this particular facility. So I'm hoping and praying that I can get this man to come back on in the future. Uh, We only had time to scratch the surface of many topics that I wanted to to speak with him today. So would you do that for me when you come back in the future? Oh, I'd love to. Fantastic. And uh, with that said, guys, we're going to go ahead and sign off. I appreciate you guys listening to the latest episode of Hardwater Radio. Until then, this is Jason Archer on behalf of John Eberly signing off, and we'll see you in the next episode.